Welcome, everyone, and thank you for coming here. Um, I apologize, I couldn't find the uh, amplification system, so if you're having trouble hearing me, just uh, let me know. Um, by Sometimes my voice trails off a little bit. It gets harder to hear, so please just let me know. Uh, on the way over here uh, this evening, I was driving my two children, who are six and eight years old, uh, so, so that we could swap uh, cars uh, as my wife was getting off work. And I asked, I, I told the children that I had to give a talk tonight on grief and loss and asked them if they knew what grief was. And uh, the eight-year-old uh, said, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I said, well, what, what do you think it is? And he says, well, isn't that like when you're really sad? Um, I said, that's part of it. And then I was, I was wondering uh, how to define it, how to define it to a child, a child who hasn't experienced um, much cause for grief in his life yet, uh, knowing that he will. So I tried, uh, I tried thinking about, um, well, I started by saying maybe it's that feeling you have when um, you had something and it's gone. So you feel sad, but also a little empty. Uh, you feel uh, hollow and confused and tried to use these words. Uh, and who knows how much he got, but it was an interesting exercise to be coming here and to be trying to define grief. Uh, we talk about it uh, as if we know it. Um, and we do know it. And it's interesting that it's hard to define. And I think part of that is that we spend little time talking about it. Uh, we spend little time talking about it with one another, uh, and kind of societally and culturally. Um, we're actually uh, unpracticed at grieving. We don't have to have major catastrophes or losses or deaths in our lives uh, to practice grief. Um, if, we, uh, if we can pay attention, uh, there's plenty of opportunities day to day uh, that we can notice and, uh, and be grieving for. Loss of abilities, opportunities, um, and then also the major ones, uh, loss of uh, family, either to death or um, separation, uh, loss of friendships. And C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a beautiful book uh, when his wife died. Uh, and it, uh, it's a series of journals that he kept over a year uh, about his process of grieving. It's, uh, the name of the book is A Grief Observed. Um, and it's a wrestling he has with his feelings of, of grief as well as uh, his kind of feeling. It's um, theological as well, so his feelings of his relationship to God. Uh, one of the things, I have uh, handouts for all these readings that I'll be sharing tonight so that you can take with you. Um, but he writes in there, uh, this speaks to uh, our, our lack of practicing 
of grief, and thinking we understand it until it hits us uh, and completely knocks us over. Uh, but he says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Uh, of course, here he's talking about his faith, but it can be any um, understanding we have. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? I know personally, I, I spend a lot of my time, uh, I, I guess, using ropes to cord boxes. <laughs> um, a lot of times, uh, the kind of beliefs that I have about the world aren't put to the test in a matter of life and death uh, until they are. Uh, and I think that's what I mean by uh, becoming practiced in grief. Um, we have a lot, of, um, a lot of ways of being in, in this world and through our lives uh, that make us feel very comfortable and secure and safe. And um, maybe a lot of ideas about how the world works uh, kind of uh, things that we've developed over time, uh, beliefs about uh, how the world works. And then we get knocked over by something in our lives, uh, some catastrophe, uh, death, uh, an illness, uh, something that, that takes us. And it calls into question some of those beliefs. And For example, I know, uh, I know a person who lost most of the ability to use his limbs. And um, he wonders why he is being punished. It's a, kind of a belief that if you do good, then you get good. If you do bad, then bad things happen to you. Uh, and it's a belief that really uh, wasn't explored until something bad happened. And then that belief no longer uh, was serving him in his healing, in his life. It became an obstacle. It became um, something that you might not want to hang over a precipice with, a rope that uh, uh, isn't too, too strong. And so much of our, our lives... Uh, we spend believing that things will last. Uh, it's a natural thing to do. It's hard sometimes to imagine that things uh, change. And so we spend, I know that I spend much of my time just assuming that things will keep going, that tomorrow will be very similar to today, maybe a different schedule, uh, that you know the events in my life will be similar, that I'll have the similar abilities in my body. Uh, my family system will be relatively stable. Um, but I have a feeling that a lot of us are here tonight because we know that's not true. Uh, we know that um, 
we know that that feeling, that's, uh, that idea, that belief of uh, the relative stability of the world uh, is a little bit of a, of a luxury and a little bit of um, kind of a, a misunderstanding. It's, a, it's partly a way of protecting ourselves from uh, the possibility that things can change quickly, rapidly. Um, when my uh, children uh, were very little uh, and I would put them to bed, I really tried uh, to touch into the fact that uh, they might not make it through the night. They are little uh, and um, they weren't sleeping in my room at that point anymore. Uh, and that SIDS, uh, the sudden infant death syndrome, is a real possibility. And so I tried to tap into that uh, when I put them to bed, um, practicing this grief. Um, and what I found was uh, there was almost like a fail-safe uh, system in my uh, in my heart <laughs> that I would kind of get to a place and be imagining that, and then I would really start to imagine it, and my body would shut down. My emotions would shut down. My thinking, everything just stopped. I was like, you know what? We don't need to do that. <laughs> it's like a, a fail-safe. So I think there's, um, I think there is uh, partly built into our um, mental capacity and into our emotional world, uh, not wanting to practice that, um, that experience. Uh, but we can kind of get a little a taste of it until it becomes very real. We can practice it a little bit. Um, uh, Stephen Jenkinson has uh, wrote, written many books on grief, uh, founded the Orphan Wisdom School. And I like one of his definitions of grief. Mm -hmm. He says, grief is a way of loving that which has disappeared from sight. And love is a way of grieving that which has not yet done so. Um, I'll say that again. I, I didn't write it on the handout, so I'll say it again. Uh, but grief is a way of loving that which has disappeared from sight. And love is a way of grieving that which has not yet done so. Um, it really taps into that uh, interplay of grief and love, of that connection um, between uh, deep love and deep grief. If we risk loving deeply, uh, we automatically risk uh, grieving deeply. Um, And so we, we talk about grief and we talk about loss. And I do want to mention, talk a little bit about the word loss. Um, in some circles, uh, particularly uh, in some of the training that I had for chaplaincy, they encourage us to avoid the use of the word loss and to use the word uh, death or died in the context of uh, the chaplaincy. Um, and I will share one funny story. 
So one day I was sitting in the, in the hospice office, and one of the nurses received a call from the, uh, a locked uh, facility that, for memory care and um, uh, for people who are, are struggling with Alzheimer's and uh, are in a, um, a locked unit. And I heard the person on the other end uh, say, you know, we lost so-and-so. And the nurse paused and she said, what do you mean? Uh, because in that context, they actually could have lost a person. Uh, she could have wandered away from the facility. Um, and so then the, the person said, well, she, the person died. Uh, but it was a, it was a funny, it, it, it was a reminder of, we have to use that word lost or loss intentionally, um, not as a way of avoiding using the words death or dying. Um, but I do think it's an important word. Uh, and we talk about grief and loss regularly because um, uh, together, uh, because we know that when someone we love or something we love or um, we have a major change in our life, um, we know that with that feeling of grief is a feeling of loss, as though something is missing. And it is a feeling of um, searching for that, searching for that person, um, searching for um, you know, the, uh, the way that we used to be. Uh, it, you kind of go through the day, go through your day regularly, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you think to yourself, well, where is so-and-so? You know, they, they are lost, um, and we are searching for them. I think it's a very appropriate word. Um, I, uh, I have a, a friend um, at the bus stop in the morning. It's always a great place to gather with other uh, parents, and, and you get that little window after the children have left. And, um, she was talking about uh, having attended a memorial service for a friend of hers over uh, just this past weekend. And um, she said that she had really been dreading uh, going to the service um, because she knew that uh, it would be painful to relive those um, memories. Uh, she had been kind of organizing her life around uh, um, not going into that place, kind of like I described with the... Uh, my children, um, not really letting it sink in deeply. And, um, and she said that uh, she was really glad that she went. Um, and she brought her children there. And they actually uh, said on Monday morning, they said, uh, hey, mom, thanks for a great weekend. You know, it's not something you would expect, but it was important. And and we were talking a little bit about it, and she said one of the reasons she was dreading it was that it marked that finality. Uh, she had to face that, um, the fact that that person had died. Um, and so I asked her, I said, did you find uh, through the memorial service that um, instead of facing the finality of that person's death, that you were able to begin reintegrating that person into your life. Uh, in other words, finding that person again. Uh, they had been lost. Mm -hmm. And she said that's exactly what it felt like, was that there was this 
you come to this service and you recognize and you honestly face that that person has died and then you walk away from the service and um, you start finding, being able to find that person in your life again uh, in a new way, in a different way. Um, not the way that we want necessarily, uh, but the way that we can uh, and the way that we need to, to move through that. Um, share another quote from the C.S. Lewis book. He says, uh, uh, for in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs round and round. Everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I am on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up or down it? How often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like the complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss till this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. He was in that process of, of searching and coming round and coming back around. Uh, I didn't bring the quotes from the end of the book. Eventually he does uh, kind of rediscover that, uh, his life, rediscover his life in his life. Uh, but it, it, takes a, it takes a long time. Um, memorial services, of course, provide an opportunity for uh, kind of an um, institutional uh, or societal uh, public grief uh, time, a time to acknowledge that loss and sorrow. Um, and kind of moving a little bit out of the personal, um, of the individual uh, grief experience, one thing that I've been experiencing lately is this, these small and sometimes huge um, losses uh, kind of societally uh, and culturally. And it's been um, kind of informing how I think and feel about grief. Uh, and I've noticed that um, I'm having a little bit of a tendency to uh, slip into or sink into uh, despair, um, which is a feels like a, what happens when grief is piled on top of grief, and um, sometimes it's hard to feel a way out of that. Uh, the despair that I've been feeling particularly is uh, just related, <laughs> just is uh, related to our our earth been feeling a deep sense of kind of dread and, and overwhelm uh, in thinking about our earth and, and where it's headed, particularly, uh, as I mentioned, those two little boys, you know, I can think of them, kind of their individual 
um, lives, but then they, they're going into this kind of collective and um, social uh, situation that, you know, I won't be there for the, all the way through that, through them. Um, and despair is a very uncomfortable place to be in. Um, uh, when we have uh, grief that goes on for a long time uh, and may not have an end, it's easy to fall into despair. Uh, it's uncomfortable uh, to be with people who are in despair as well. Um, one of the feelings that arises for me in the midst of, of that, of despair of my own and sitting with others in theirs, is a feeling of helplessness. Uh, I think one aspect of grief is a feeling of helplessness. Um, we spend much of our lives believing we can fix many things. Um, and I think grief and despair are a recognition, a deep recognition and acknowledgement that we can't fix everything or anything sometimes. And um, and it's a challenge uh, to be in that place, to touch into it. It's an uncomfortable feeling because it's, uh, those feelings of helplessness, of uh, fear, of dread. Um, don't worry, we're, we'll go out of this. I hope, I'm not <laughs> hope we're not all spiraling down with uh, C.S. Lewis. But, um, and it's, it's that feeling of kind of loneliness and isolation, too, I think, is a, another um, feeling of despair, that, that desire to want to uh, close up close off from the world. Uh, I remember <laughs> years, years and years ago, um, boy, close to 20 years ago now, uh, a friend of mine was uh, going through a divorce and uh, she had been introduced to mindfulness practice. Um, had been practicing for a year or two and uh, she said, you know, I really don't want to feel into this feeling and just be present with it. I just want to listen to Van Morrison records. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, it was actually not an unskillful means. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, finding those way, that way, um, when you're in that feeling of despair and you are in that kind of downward spiral, it's not a bad thing to find ways to bring yourself out of it. Uh, if even for a moment of respite. It's, uh, it can be overwhelming to touch into that. Um, the poet uh, David White uh, has released a new book uh, called Consolations, where he looks at various words and then writes a uh, few paragraphs on each word. And uh, fortunately, he wrote one on despair. Uh, and it's a little long, and I will read the, the I'm not going to read the whole section, but I'll read the last uh, bit of it. Because um, this is really, I, I just came across this uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and this has really um, been serving me in working with that feeling. 
He says, the antidote to despair is not to be found in the brave attempt to cheer ourselves up with happy abstracts, but in paying a profound and courageous attention to the body and the breath, independent of our imprisoning thoughts and stories, even, strangely, in paying attention to despair itself and the way we hold it, and which we realize was never ours to own and hold in the first place. To see and experience despair fully in our body is to begin to see it as a necessary, seasonal visitation, and the first step in letting it have its own life, neither holding it nor moving it on before its time. There's a little more I'll read in a moment, but um, that courageous attention to the body and the breath. Um, something uh, that you know we practice in a mindfulness practice uh, doing, but um, it makes it made me remember and realize that one of the uh, aspects of despair and grief is that, uh, as C.S. Lewis was talking about, that circle of thoughts. Um, but remembering that our body and our breath are here. They're experiencing things too, not just our thinking. Um, we're receiving kind of the, uh, the sensations of the world uh, mediated through our body, through our senses, um, and through our breathing. And we take the first steps out of despair by taking on its full weight and coming fully to ground in our wish not to be here. We let our bodies and we let our world breathe again. In that place, strangely, despair cannot do anything but change into something else, into some other season as it was meant to do from the beginning. Despair is a difficult, beautiful, necessary, a binding understanding between human beings caught in a fierce and difficult world where half of our experience is mediated by loss. But it is a season, a waveform passing through the body, not a prison surrounding us. A season left to itself will always move, however slowly, under its own patience, power, and volition. I think one of the reasons we talk about grief and despair as we enter winter um, is that there's a lot of joy in winter, uh, in winter activities, but it is a dark season. It's dark, it's cold, um, but it is a season, just as despair is a season. Um, just as we can't rush, uh, we can rail against the cold, especially as it's getting slushier and uh, uh, that in March and April, but we can't rush it. It happens of its own accord. In um, refusing to despair about despair itself, we can let despair have its own natural life and take a first step onto the foundational ground of human compassion 
the ability to see and understand and touch and even speak the heartfelt grief of another. And so as we work with these difficult feelings and emotions, as we touch into and are present to and um, allow ourselves to experience these um, powerful, uh, overwhelming feelings, um, it does have the capacity of uh, opening up our hearts um, to the people around us, uh, to the people we think we might have be our enemies, so to say. Uh, it opens our heart to um, really feeling that thread of connection that we all share uh, of despair, of grief, of loss, um, as well as our joy and as well as our uh, as our love. We're all connected in that sense. And um, in fully uh, establishing ourselves in those places, uh, it can be a, a experience of opening ourselves to others. I find that when I let myself feel that despair, the smallest of kindnesses become huge. Um, and you start no I start noticing them more. I start noticing the kindness in others. Uh, and in turn, it makes me want to share that kindness back, uh, to share it back with the world. Um, not from a place of... Uh, it's good to be kind, but in a place of, of being broken and recognizing the brokenness in others um, and touching that and feeling that. Um, I would like to share one more uh, reading. It's kind of nice that there's so many people who have prepared so much of this talk for me. Um, <laughs> But it's just, I, it's just, for me, it's been so helpful. <laughs> I wanted to share it. Um, there's one poem I won't read uh, by Khalil Gibran uh, from the, um, uh, well, I can't remember the name of the book right now. Someone does. The Prophet. Thank you. And uh, on joy and sorrow. And it talks about that interplay uh, between touching deeply our sorrow and um, that it's also uh, the depth of our sorrow is also the depth of our joy. Uh, and the deeper we go into uh, one, the deeper we find the other as well. Um, Naomi Shiab Nye has a poem called Kindness that speaks to that as well. Um, she says, you must know, before you know sorrow is the deepest, uh, before you know kindness is the deepest thing, um, you must also know sorrow is the other deepest thing. Um, but... The th what I want to leave us with is um, a poem, Wild Geese, by Mary Oliver. Um, because she, she reminds us that we have our despair, we have our grief, um, and we also are a part of this world, uh, even when we're experiencing those. Sometimes 
those feelings make us feel that we're not a part of what's going on around us. And she reminds us uh, so eloquently and beautifully that we are. And she says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So I think uh, you know, we started talking, uh, I started this talk by uh, mentioning that we're not very good at practicing grief. Um, until we have to. Uh, and I found that uh, practicing it before we have to um, doesn't take away the pain or the heartache or the brokenness, uh, but it can help us um, remember that we are a part of this world uh, a little faster. Uh, it can help us find comfort in find comfort in the kindness and the compassion around us. Uh, and if we practice that now, <laughs> when we do ha get knocked off our feet from some, uh, some loss, some difficulty, um, we have a pretty strong rope that we can hold on to, uh, one that we could trust. Uh, we can trust in each other. Uh, we can trust in the people uh, that we surround ourselves with. Um, and we can trust in our own capacity uh, to not just heal, uh, but to feel, uh, to feel deeply both love and pain. Thank you.